0: again today we're going to start edward Said's orientalism and i'm going to do this i believe in three parts i hate not being certain but it just happened to work out this way where i'm not entirely sure whether it will be two or three parts i'm thinking three but anyways just putting that out there this episode is going to cover the intro and chapter one next episode we'll cover chapter two and the following one if there is one we'll cover chapter three but before jumping into it hi i'm david i try to explain philosophical concepts and ideas in ways to make them accessible to you so if you're new here greetings uh, like share subscribe if you found this on youtube you'll be able to find 250 some more episodes on there if you want or if you found this in podcast form you can scroll through there and find ep- many more episodes and you know vice versa if you found this in podcast form you can find me on youtube or i sometimes release videos if you're into that at all or if you just want the audio form and you found me on youtube you can go download this on A podcast platform. If you want to help me out, leave five stars, leave a review, leave a like, share, subscribe, that would all, all those things would help me out a lot. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but clearly no pressure. And if you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram or on Twitter. Links for these things are names in the description. And uh, yeah, let's jump into the introduction of Edward Said's Orientalism, which is probably the most um, common text in any kind of post-colonial course or or course on colonialism for anyone in university. And for good reason, but also for maybe not always the best reasons. And I have my criticisms of this text that I'll try to temper. Uh, and maybe at the very end, in the last episode, I'll talk about that a bit. But for now, let's just jump into the introduction. Now, in the introduction, Saeed establishes what he means by the Orient and he's talking specifically here he's writing specifically here about the Orient that is seen through the eyes of Europe specifically of France and Britain pre-World War II and then in the second and third chapters he's going to talk about how that mutated into a new kind of orientalism taken on by the United States and, and Canada and other, and other countries there and the Orient that he was referring to here really has nothing to do with asia uh, as we might colloquially colloquially understand it from india uh, eastward what he's referring to here is the orient is the middle east or the arabic world so he doesn't and this is one of my issues he doesn't exactly delineate what he means by this i guess we can assume east of turkey in uh, in europe however turkey is also very much arabic so we're kind of left to just assume we know what he's discussing here and there's an issue with that because he's writing this text speaking to people who already have a prejudiced notion about what the middle east is by simply reducing all of these very different countries to just a single identity and he's running with that and We understand why he's doing that. He's talking to a tradition that has done that historically, but he doesn't unpack it at all, which I think is what one of these things this text needs because these countries are not written about in a homogenous, clear way, despite what he says. And anyways, I said I would temper my criticisms, but I'm not doing a great job. Now, the creation of the Orient or the establishment and recognition of the Middle East as a place that is separate from Europe, even though many countries that would fall within its purview are in Europe, the construction of this geographic space and the attribution of it with certain characteristics serves two fundamental purposes for Europe or for the West. And again, this is one of these things that he doesn't fully unpack as to what he necessarily means by the West or by Europe, as though these are just huge, homogenous masses without any uh, specific qualities. Now, these two purposes for Europe that the Middle East serves is that it exists as a site of Europe's origin, or as the site of Europe's origin, where many of its values, institutions, and ways of thinking were born. So Christianity comes from what is understood as the Middle East, uh, science and mathematics emerges from there, rationality, rationalism, I should say, really, emerges from there. Yet uh, this, these facts are constantly trying to be discredited or constantly trying to be erased within the European imaginary. The second purpose that it serves is that it now exists as a constitutive other to help define Europe. Now, what that means is that it exists outside of Europe. It is constructed as being outside of Europe as a way for Europe to establish its own identity. So Europe says, look, we are so great. We are so wonderful because we are not like those people over there. And in this case, it's just using the Orient as an other to proffer up Europe's vision of itself. So what is Orientalism. I mean, that is the subject of this text. Orientalism has four really specific qualities that Said is interested in here, and the first one is that Orientalism exists in many domains, but perhaps it is the most its most common one is within academia, where people study and write on the Orient. This is one kind of Orientalism, and uh, you would have many university professors who would specialize in understanding this place called the orient and they would be called and they would call themselves orientalists now besides that kind of orientalism the second kind that he really wants to unpack here is a little bit more nefarious and it is a style in his words it is a style of thought based upon an ontological and epistemological distinction made between the orient and the occident and the occident is just the west So this kind of Orientalism is a little bit more difficult to pin down. It can't just be reduced to certain people who readily call themselves Orientalists who just study or write about the Orient. This might instead correspond to other ways of thinking that just assume that there's a distinction between the Orient and the Occident, between the East and the West. Now third and finally, I think I said four, but anyways, third and finally, Said sets his sights on Orientalism As a corporate institution for dealing with the orient for dealing with it by making statements about it authorizing views about it describing it by teaching it settling it and ruling over it so the orient as it is constructed is not just a textual uh, enterprise it's not just a textual endeavor there are real material interests behind the creation of the orient And this is something that would play out well into the 20th century with uh, corporate interests being oil, uh, oil corporate interests being satisfied by uh, a public that always already or that already hated the Orient, in that case, uh, the Middle East. So it made it all the more easy for these corporate interests to satisfy their search for profit. Now, this brand of Orientalism, this this corporate one, one that seeks to regulate, to control, to rule over the Orient, is one that he understands through the work of Michel Foucault. And if anyone's interested in any more work on Michel Foucault, I've done, I think, like 30 episodes on his stuff, if you're interested in any of that. But the point is that there are real material efforts that have had serious impacts on the orient how it is represented how it is perceived and how it is perceived to itself now in all of this it's easy for us to think that these efforts have sought to just understand and grapple with a thing that just exists out in the world the orient but it is by virtue of these acts of mapping of coding of understanding that actually provides a face to the orient that actually creates the orient and in its creation in it's kind of done in a hegemonic way it can then be associated with certain unsavory traits from a european perspective so it will be associated with and this is what it has been associated with it has been associated with non-whiteness with sensuality with a lack of education That is, about the people associating its governments with despotism, with chaos, and so on. And all of these traits come to be stuck to the Orient and to the idea of the Orient, and it becomes very difficult to separate the two. So what that produces then is a further possible justification of a writing about the Orient, which can then serve the purpose of instilling in the minds of Europeans or others Certain ideas, negative ideas about the Orient, that could then justify and facilitate further corporate governmental intervention in the Orient to rule it, to control it, and so on. So, even people who aren't doing readily political work, so cultural studies people, people maybe studying literature who are studying the Orient, nevertheless are being political insofar as the construction of the Orient that they are engaging with is one that has come into fruition through these very efforts uh, that they have been undertaking. And these efforts can then be appropriated by real, maybe uh, more strict or explicit political interests that can then exploit the Orient. So these efforts are political insofar as they rest upon geopolitical, economic, and imperialist interests in a firm or that rest upon a firm distinction between the West and the East or profit from that distinction. Now to properly engage with Orientalism and what he means here is understanding these fields of study and other political efforts to map and code and exploit the Orient he has to be selective in the texts that he engages with, and he's very much aware that there is a limitation to his approach. He can't look at every single text that writes about the Orient and present upon it in any kind of meaningful way. For all I know, he has read every single thing about it, probably unlikely because there's a lot, but anyways, he has to be very selective in what he actually chooses to read and write about. And whenever we're confronted with a selection process. We have to be aware that the texts that actually come through in the selection process are going to reveal much about the selector's own prejudice, their own bias, that is probably unknown to them. And this isn't something that I would necessarily know how to unpack right here because I don't have a very strong grasp of all the Orientalist texts that he writes about. But in any case, it's important to dig into that because these texts serve a certain purpose for Said in elaborating upon his idea about what Orientalism uh, is comprised of, which isn't necessarily wrong, but we are, by virtue of that, going to be limited in the understanding that he offers us, or it's going to be limited in how we can then understand the Orient. And I think this might motivate some of his dodging Around actually establishing what the Orient is, uh, or what the West or Occident is, how to actually parse out these very complicated distinctions. But in any case, he chooses to focus on Orientalism that specializes in um, Islam and Arabic, Arabic, excuse me, Arabic peoples and cultures, as opposed to looking at like Indian texts, or Chinese texts, or Japanese texts, and so on. Which doesn't mean that there aren't also Orientalist efforts to understand map control, code, the uh, further Orient from India onwards, but that that would be way too much for him to really, to really look at. And there is something specific about the way that the Near Orient, which is the Arabic world, exists... Proximatively, proximatively is right next to Europe. And this has meant that it has served certain economic interests and other geopolitical and territorial uh, interests for Europe that has contributed to this literature emerging or these other texts emerging about the Orient. So to perform this analysis of Orientalism as it engages with the Arabic world, he wants to look at the way that the Orient is presented and how that presentation is naturalized. So this is a bit ironic, though, because Said is also ignoring the Orient itself. And this is purposeful. So he's not actually looking at texts emerging from the Orient, from people who are classified as belonging to the Orient. He is instead looking at texts from the uh, dominators, in this case, from, in a lot of cases, uh, imperialists. And he chooses to do this because he doesn't want to compare the representations by Europeans with a quote-unquote real Orient, to say that maybe, I don't know, one writer in Iraq might really demonstrate what the real Orient is, because all that would do would be that it would recapitulate or it would be to reconstruct the very idea that there is this homogenous oriental mass when Said is not convinced that that's the case at all so to properly engage with the orient means divorcing himself from that space even though he uh, was technically born there and is very familiar with that culture if i can say or one culture within what is classified as the orient so orientalism then reveals much more about the culture that engages within it within it with it than the cultures that it writes about. So Orientalism really reveals much about Europe, more about Europe than it does about any country or any people, any culture within the Middle East. And so there were offshoots of Orientalism, and we'll get into some of these in a little bit more detail later on, but there's some offshoots of Orientalism where there's Freudian Orientalism, there's racist Orientalism, linguistic Orientalism, Darwinian Orientalism, and and so on. So I should have specified that saeed was born in Palestine uh, or grew up in Palestine and in Egypt. And so he was very much he very much felt these material effects of orientalism on those places. So the point of his book is to show how cultural discourse and texts is material in its effects, how it can Produce material effects, even though it's only textual, it's just written on paper. Words written on paper. Like, words can... Apparently, they, they words can't break bones, however it goes. <laughs> uh, names and words... Sticks and stones can break my bones, but names and words can't hurt me. I don't think I've said that in 25 years. Uh, in any case, the idea here is that words can have real effects. They can very much break bones. Uh, as they have through many imperial conquests of these uh, territories conducted by Europe and European countries. Now, before moving into chapter one, it's important to note that Orientalism is not just about a geographic area. And one of the reasons for that is that Israel is situated right in the heart of this thing, this place called the Orient, yet Israel is imbued with certain quote-unquote Western or Occidental characteristics and so this problematizes just uh, the simple idea that the orient is just a place it is specifically the arabic world in or in and around a certain kind of geographical proximity or approximation and that puts us here into chapter one titled the scope of orientalism Now, throughout the course of this text, Saeed name drops a lot. He'll name drop intellectuals, political figures, artists, government officials, like magistrates, or anything like that. And I don't have the time to go through every single one of them. So my job here has been to select the ones that I feel, and this opens up certain, should spur you to ask how I've chosen these, but I've selected the few that I think best articulate Saeed's project here. So he begins this chapter by citing government and military officials like Arthur Balfour, who Saeed shows um, how in Britain, understanding the other, or understanding the other was a way to attain knowledge, and therefore power over that other. So Balfour would write, and he was doing this in the early 20th century, around 1910, when he was writing much and speaking much to parliament and to other government officials, thinking about and writing and talking about Egypt. And one of his tactics was to repeatedly suggest that the Egyptian people are incapable of self-government. And so this is why that Egypt, among other oriental countries, countries that are just associated with the Orient, continually or repeatedly fall into despotism into tyranny and this idea justifies european involvement there it justifies europe's uh, ongoing imperialism of these places and they can justify it to themselves as being almost a humanitarian effort to liberate these people from these backwards despotic regimes very much like what was seen following 9-11 with the United States and Saddam Hussein. But anyways, uh, I digress. So in addition to Arthur Balfour, there was a fellow by the name of Lord Cromer who was responsible for ruling Egypt and crushing any insubordination within Egypt because clearly people are not just going to sit around uh, in all cases and let a foreign country come in and establish rule over the land and people. Like, imagine if um, Iranian officials saw what happened on January 6th in the United States a couple of years ago and said, oh, wow, this country is clearly, these people can't have any self-government. We must then roll some tanks in and control this country for these people. That would be an absolutely ridiculous thing to think. Yet, it was something that has been conducted innumerable times. Uh, in these countries in the middle east by europe and by the united states and certainly canada and other countries so there is a tension here between arthur balfour and lord cromer where balfour would often use and draw upon scientific discourse to justify ongoing colonialism of middle eastern countries and to say that there is almost like a necessity for europe to involve themselves because it is just the right thing to do according to scientific dogma or whatever whereas lord cromer really didn't bother with any of these justifications he just viewed it as an absolute necessity for europe to exert its military might over these people uh, just to essentially use power to exert control over the other over the middle eastern other but in either case that is by Balfour or Lord Cromer, there was an acknowledgement that power had to be conducted in such a way so that it be flexible, so that it wasn't just about one country entering the lands of another and just taking control. Instead, there was a kind of flexible disciplinary apparatus put into use in order to meet new challenges and new issues that would emerge in these places to be able to adapt power to meet these transformations in these territories. Now this is something that at this time was really beginning to emerge and it's something that would intensify over the 20th century, but this is also reserved more for chapter two where Said is going to expand more upon this nuanced approach to discipline to control, to power. Uh, he's going to talk about this more in chapter two. And I, t- I would just like to say that I think that Saeed, it almost feels like Saeed just wrote this text without laying out a plan first. And so we get these little shots of ideas appear and they aren't fully developed until later on, if they are developed at all. In some cases they aren't. So it just it's kind of difficult to engage with. But anyways, these people, Lord Cromer, Balfour, among others, believed that the best thing for people of the world to do was to simply adopt British values. And this extended to every country, not just countries within the Orient. And so we you know there was also efforts to colonize uh, south South America, African countries, um, other countries within the further area further orient in order like India, in order to just make the world british essentially and then you know there are some wild stats that at the end of world war one european countries had colonized like 90 percent of the earth's surface which is just a horrifying figure but in any case it reveals that there was clearly a drive to distribute this idea about european exceptionalism specifically in this case british values onto the world so orientals or Arabic people in this case were framed as unreasoning, conniving, lazy, whereas Europeans were imbued with qualities uh, that were really the opposite. They were seen as being reasonable. They were they were seen as being trustworthy. They were active. They weren't licentious. Uh, they were, you know, they they could have self-government and so on. And so there is a little bit of a chicken and and egg situation here where Orientalist beliefs about the Orient justified colonial rule and weren't necessarily the product of colonial rule. But at the same time, colonial rule would give birth and justify Orientalist ideas. So it's important to acknowledge that one didn't necessarily condition the other. They very much go hand in hand and mutually constitute each other. So these beliefs emerge from two broad domains within European thought. That is the emerging scientific method that put all peoples, cultures under a kind of microscope to code them, to understand them. And number two, it emerged from a growing literary and artistic effort to capture and represent the Orient. But as we've already said, the Orient doesn't exist out there. It's not just waiting out there to be found. It actually comes into existence with these operations put into play by having the scientific apparatus put into play by having a growing literary and artistic effort to capture and represent the orient they give the orient a face and this extended back to europe back upon itself where european thinkers and orientalists would actually be policed as to what they were allowed or not allowed to say about the orient where if there was an intellectual who would say something that might suggest that Uh, the people of Egypt were actually capable of self-government, according to XYZ historical circumstances there, those ideas would be shunned. That person would not be given tenure. I don't know if tenure was actually uh, whatever. The point is that they would not be appreciated in that setting. And so unless ideas would correspond with a hegemonic image of the Orient, they would be silenced. They wouldn't be, they would they wouldn't see the light of day. And so the binary logic of Orientalism is extended beyond Europe to other places like the United States, for example, where Saeed quotes Henry Kissinger, uh, who uses a similar rhetoric to describe the distinction between developed and developing worlds. And, you know, we see this all over. We have democratic, the democratic world, and the undemocratic world, or other kinds of distinctions that are used to just Clump uh, advanced countries with un- against unadvanced countries. Now, saeed does something here that's an- annoying, where he says that it's almost natural for any country or culture or people to rely upon such distinctions in order to better understand themselves and to understand possible enemies, and he doesn't nuance that suggestion in, at least in a satisfactory way for me. And the problem with that is that it just makes it seem as though the same kind of operations are occurring from the Orient's perspective, how those people are constructed uh, or how those people exist. They're just doing the same thing to the West. And the issue is that it doesn't fully grasp the fact that even if it was a natural operation, that all cultures just try to reduce the other to a manageable, understandable enemy that negates the fact or ignores the fact that European colonial corporate institutional efforts have been like no other in the history of the world in its scope and in its uh, power. Which isn't to say that any other efforts by less powerful continents or countries is, is any more uh, is any better surely this is also these are also um, efforts that should be criticized but in any case by saying that he ignores the specificity of european expansion across the globe and just the power that is associated with that and what it has done to people all across the globe it's not just one country who has an image of another country and they never engage with one another the effects here are transform the situation into something entirely different it is a change a qualitative change that has been brought about by a quantitative difference just by being that much bigger it has become something else entirely so here he asks after my rant how is the orient organized in such a way as to open the possibility of its being studied surely a field of study on occidentalism or on the occident or on the west would be weird that no one would as far as we know that doesn't exist at least i don't think at at the time i guess it didn't exist Uh, so how does a geographic area come to be an object of study despite the many different people and cultures within it how is it homogenized in such a way as to make its study possible well an identity must be first assumed of that geographic area that comes to stand for that territory So European territory is imbued imbued with some qualities while the Orient is imbued with others. And these qualities are imagined, right? They aren't real. Like there is no real quality that that could possibly be used as a universal for any culture or or any group of countries or any single country for that matter. All of these countries and cultures are comprised of Myriad people and identities and, and ways of thinking about the world and so on. And there's a very long history here in Europe where the Greeks uh, demonstrated a fear of the Asian other as being as being mysterious and this goes all the way back to the Iliad where and he presents some examples of the way that the Far East is constructed as this mysterious foreign um, scary other that always haunts, greek life and people and so this he just sort of speculates that this might have been the template for europe to construct its own image of the orient and imbuing it with certain qualities that can uh, be perceived as as scary and then after muhammad's death in 1632 in the common era current era uh, islam began to expand through uh, through many countries and europe was left to respond with fear there were many Efforts conducted by Islamic countries to expand and to engage in colonial efforts. And Europe Europe responded to this by really demonizing uh, these countries. And by extension, demonizing Islam, demonizing Arabic people, and so on. And so what Europe would do was that it would construct many elements of the Orient as being secondary to or as copies, facsimiles, simulacra if you will of western of european identities or qualities so muhammad was seen as just being a kind of second jesus to christianity uh to to islam from christianity which is which is absolutely ridiculous but this is the one of the examples that he gives and the same with like the bible is uh is seen as being the primary text whereas The Orient, or the Orient, the Quran is seen as being the secondary one. Or, um, uh, you know, the the racist uh, ideas just just flourish from from here. So the Orientalist's job in this paradigm is to confirm the hegemonic view of the Orient. This reveals the trinity of Orientalism. There's the Orientalist, there's the Orient, and then there's the Western consumer of Orientalism. So there's that thing out there that's being studied, which is just created, really. There's the person studying it, and then there's just everybody else who's consuming these images of the Orient and they come to internalize them as being true. So he's, I guess, really what makes this kind of operation different from any other is that these Orientalists are conducting this kind of activity at a point in time in which communication, in which corporate interest, in which... uh, the, the interests of, of capital really generally, of governmental power, of military power, other kinds of technology, are at a point that it's not just a narrative about another country or a group of countries. There are real material effects that will ensue as a result of these ideas, of these Orientalist views. Which again, isn't to say that any kind of colonial expansion is good, and that only the European kind is bad. Absolutely not. And you know, just a moment ago, we were describing how after Muhammad's death, Islam really began to expand throughout that part of the world through many colonial efforts. It's important to acknowledge and to criticize that as well, but it's also important to acknowledge and criticize how Europe was different. Now, something else that is interesting about Orientalism is the way that it troubles European emphasis on empiricism. the time so the orient is constructed in such a way almost speculatively there aren't real attributes really assigned to it and these ideas are not they do not come from rigorous observation and study they instead comply with prejudice they comply with fear with speculation with um, a lack of reason and this flies in the face with one of Europe's central views of itself as being that site of rationalism that the Middle East does not embrace. And remember, many of these ideas actually originated in the Orient. And so Islam in the Orient has always haunted Europe. And I say Islam because Christianity has always been haunted by the orient because the orient is the site for many biblical um i guess many biblical stories where jesus is in so many european and other western uh, representations is depicted as this like six foot tall white guy with this flowing long hair when that is certainly he would not have looked like that in any way shape or form being uh, being born in Jerusalem 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. So this proximity to Christian sites, to biblical sites, has really been a, been a problem for Europe and for its view and its attachment to God and to the Bible. If, you know, its central text, its central religious text, the Bible, is actually being is actually writing about or speaks about places that doesn't actually really belong to Europe, that poses a problem, and the Orient's proximity uh, to Europe that is more geographically makes it so that it is a more appropriate adversary for uh, this kind of cultural war between Europe and another. So the in this case the the Near Orient kind of satisfies that itch, but it really, of course, it's important to acknowledge that subordination or efforts to subordinate other countries were conducted in other places as well like Britain against India like France and Vietnam much later Uh, but you would have many European countries that would try to subordinate other ones in ways that resemble its treatment of the Near Orient so in the late 18th century William Jones sought to codify to subdue uh, the infinite variety of the Orient to a complete digest of laws figures customs and works really to create this compendium of all of these texts all of these uh, literary artistic productions to try to understand the orient and similar things were done in india like don't don't get it don't get me wrong here but you know saeed is really focusing on this treatment of the arabic world so in this case people like jones who organized these compendiums of the near orient people like jones helped to encourage conquest of the orient by figures like napoleon so napoleon bonaparte one of you know napoleon one of the few figures in history who goes by his first name popularly uh, who had a significant interest in near orient for much of his life and napoleon studied arabic napoleon had a very strong grasp of egyptian history and the history of other countries around there and he, because he was always fascinated by the Orient as being this mysterious, uh, otherworldly thing, to him from France, or just from Europe. Now, because Napoleon knew that his army didn't stand a chance in Egypt when it sought to ride its horses in, into there, uh, the his army didn't stand a chance in Egypt. He mounted a cultural war in Egypt, which is as Saeed lays out, was quite clever, uh, claiming to be one with Islam and that he was really an ally to Islam and he was really a leader of um, the Islamic faith. And so what he did is that he rounded up Muslim academics and intellectuals in Egypt and gave them uh, rewards and gave them awards, military awards and whatnot for their the kind of work that they were doing and what this did was made him a kingmaker which is clever in a political sense in that it might bestow an award upon certain people but the real thing being conducted here or the real effort of this effort was to make it seem as though Napoleon was the ultimate decider of um, celebration or of applause in that setting and so he would rehearse and he would recite a comp- comprehensive understanding of the Quran and of Arabic and uh, Islamic culture and this gave him a lot of political clout in that setting because he again he knew his army wouldn't stand a chance and this allowed him to get close with political figures in those settings and then he could then expose these countries and really Egypt To French rule through a more diplomatic through more diplomatic channels as opposed to military ones. And it was a way for Napoleon not only to command Egypt or to gain control over it, but to demonstrate to the rest of the world that he could essentially defang Egypt and to bring Egypt into the fold of an emerging world order that was going to be organized around European values, French, British values. And what this would also do was to demonstrate that Europe was so, uh, had such a great vision of itself, uh, or to, uh, it would, it would confirm Europe's vision of itself because it was able to bring in this very different other that ostensibly held all the opposite characteristics. It was a way to say that, oh, if we can show them the way of European values and they take the bait, that will demonstrate that European values are really great, which is, of course, uh, super problematic. Now, as we approach the end of this chapter, Said considers once more about the nature of texts in allowing people or giving people a template in how to understand something that they don't know. So he provides this example of uh, nature, text on nature, like how to deal with a bear attack. And so you you thank yourself for having read a book about bear attacks before you actually get attacked by a bear. And texts serve this function beyond just bear attacks to help you understand others, to help you understand other countries and peoples and cultures. And so these texts come to produce a kind of inert movement. It, It presents an image of the other, And then other people read and see that image, and then they come to replicate it, to reproduce it. And over time, these texts begin to stand in for that other, in this case, the Orient, and come to freeze the Orient in time to make the Orient inseparable from the way that it is represented in this hegemonic way by certain colonial interests or colonial powers with certain interests. However, the Orient is not stagnant. The Orient is always changing. It's mutating. And this was especially true in the 20th century when uh, countries there began to gain a lot of wealth and power on the world stage, partly because of um, the discovery of various oil mines and other uh, oil opportunities that made these countries very, very rich. Now, despite the changes that ensued, Orientalists made sense of them these changes, by always still viewing the Orient as a backwards place of chaos, despotism, and undeserved wealth. Or in some cases, these developments were rationalized as only a reaction to European growth and Western progress, as though these people don't actually think for themselves, but only respond. They're only reactionaries to Western progress and Western growth. And so here, moving into the next chapter, which we'll pick up in in the next episode, he's gonna begin to think about the way that Orientalism became a more secular enterprise. It wasn't just about religion, it wasn't about Christianity and uh, Islam, it became about a battle of rationalism and a battle of science over the unknown. And uh, yeah, so if you made it this far, thanks a lot. If there's anything I excluded, or got wrong. I'd love to hear about it. If you like what I did, like, share, subscribe. Uh, You can help me out through all the memes I mentioned earlier. And yeah, catch you next time. Take care.